Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, a lot of updates on COVID-19, an evolving situation. The NHL and the NBA both announcing that their seasons are on hold. We hear from Scott Stinson, national sports columnist for Post Media. Also, very much an evolving situation in the nation's capital. We hear from David Aiken, chief political correspondent with Global News. Plus, a conversation about the economy and how to improve Canada's competitiveness, both in dealing with the short-term challenges and looking ahead long-term. We hear from Jack Mintz, President's Fellow at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. I suppose if we've learned anything from this week, it's that things can happen fast. Things can change quickly. And I think that's even the lesson from today. So it is an evolving situation on several fronts. And so there's a lot to get to. But let's start right out of the gate here with the news concerning professional sports, in particular, the NHL, the NBA, MLS, National Lacrosse League. Uh, It's uh, really having a domino effect. Uh, But certainly events in the NBA have had a big impact on the decision that the NHL has to make and that decision we got just a little while ago here uh, that the season is on hold the season is paused which certainly implies the hope that it can resume at some point we may be crowning a stanley cup champion in august or we may have in the history books like we did 101 years ago no stanley cup champion uh, and, and this all stems to um, from from the situation in the NBA, as mentioned. A member of the Utah Jazz has tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, the NBA in a situation where, well, we can't just isolate a single team or a handful of teams. Uh, so they put the season on hold. And that kind of left the NHL really with no choice. Uh, so the Flames were to play tonight. That's not going to happen. So the league is shut down for the time being. Joining us uh, for the latest on all of this, Scott Stinson, national sports columnist with Post Media, trying to stay on top of all of this today. Scott, thanks for making some time for us here. My pleasure, Rob. How are you doing? Uh, Pretty good. So obviously, like, I mean, they're they're separate leagues, but everyone's kind of in this together. So there was an obvious link between what happened with the NBA and what's now happened with the NHL. Yeah, I mean, the the most sort of obvious thing being there's a lot of shared facilities in mm-hmm. these uh, arenas. In fact, the the visitor's dressing room in just about every arena that hosts uh, an NHL or an NBA team is a visiting dressing room for whichever sport happens to be on that night. So it's not a, there's not two separate visitors' locker rooms. There's just the one. And uh, so given that and training facilities and all these things, from the moment when we learned that there was an NBA player now it seems like it might be players mm-hmm. who had tested positive. Um, there was at least uh, a significant possibility that NHL players were not necessarily positive, but at risk of being positive. And as we have learned as this story has evolved, you know, the danger is that if you think you might have been exposed, then you need to self-isolate and wait to see if symptoms develop and all this stuff. So it doesn't take a great leap to sort of realize that these there was really nothing the National Hockey League could do here other than, I think, suspend the season because they would know that they would have had a number of people who were at least fall under the category of at risk to have been in contact with somebody who had COVID-19. So here we are. Yeah, here we are. I mean, that was always the thing, right? I mean, if a player got this, that that was that was going to change things. So the whole talk about having games in front of empty arenas, that that was more about protecting the public, wasn't it? 
It was, and it was a, uh, it was a. Uh, well, we could still function as a league and do our thing, and and forego the revenue of of fans and seats, and it would allow us to proceed over a period of weeks, possibly, and then kind of let fans back into the building. But the seasons would all be, you know, where they were supposed to be at that point in the calendar. What this this thing has done with the Rudy Gobert situation in in Utah has made that an unrealistic possibility. And, and so now they are having to do this thing where not only are they suspending the season, they're suspending it with, like, really no idea of, of when things will be resumed because, um, you know, they're just uh, – you sort of said this as, as the introduction. Things happen have happened so fast yes. in the past – day two days week that uh you know we'll see it's it's gonna it's gonna i think have a cascading effect and and it'll be interesting to see as the as the days and weeks go by here you know what the things that we're used to doing at this time of year just aren't going to be available to to be done you know there'll be a lot of evenings where people were used to watching a, a sports team on their channel of choice they're just not going to be there it was weird. I mean, Monday night, I think it was, I was watching that Raptors jazz game and I was struck by how weird looking the jazz uniforms were, but <laughs> that, that was just a few nights ago. And, you know, in, in basketball, right, you're in very close contact when, when you're out there on the court and, and battling it out. So what's the situation with the Toronto Raptors? Well, they've all been uh, tested for coronavirus. We have not heard anything in terms of results. But yeah, I mean... Not only was Rudy Gobert playing in that game at a point where at which he was obviously transmissible, um, but he got into a rather heated exchange at the end of the game with OG and Yanobi on the Raptors to the point where they were both ejected from right. the game with technical fouls, and they were you know in each other's face and pushing and shoving and uh, exchanging heated words. So as a possibility of transmitting a virus, that would seem to be uh, you know certainly possible um and i actually noticed something watching that game too rob where gobert then left the court and he peeled off like his protective elbow padding and tossed it into the stands (laughs) and at the time i just sort of noted it as well i was kind of ridiculous given that they were operating these leagues with a, a basically a you know protective barrier around their players from the media and here the players were throwing their sweaty equipment that they've been coughing into all night uh, into the stands. And, and then, of course, it turns out he's the guy that is like patient zero for the NBA's coronavirus outbreak. So uh, I, I think it only just goes to illustrate that they were always being a little naive and hoping that this wouldn't cross their doors in this manner. And, and now it has. Right. And so to that end, and uh, Scott, is it naive to think that, you know, things will get back on track in a month or two that, you know, we'll have to postpone the, the playoffs a little bit, but, you know, we'll, we'll still have a Stanley Cup champion and an NBA champion. I, you know, it's just so hard to know at this point, you know, the way things, it kind of feels like now all these dominoes are falling in terms of um, limiting public gatherings, whether it's sporting events or concerts or everything. Um, you sort of wonder if we could have a pause of a month where the quote-unquote social distancing becomes the norm. You know, maybe if if the virus isn't transmitting in the community, then that's going to be the set of circumstances that allows these leagues to get back operating again and to try to get some normalcy back. Um, 
I, I don't know. I think I think kind of all options are on the table, and and I think it's going to end up being much like when you have labor stoppages, where when they have big pauses in schedules previously, they just kind of come back and they make up the rules as they see fit. They could go, well, maybe we'll just do like five games, and then we'll have the first round of the playoffs be best of five or yeah. or something like that. And I, I kind of think they'll they'll try to figure out some way to make this work. Um, with whatever amount of time they have left in a calendar year because, you know, they have to have some kind of off-season too and then they don't want to get into affecting the following season and and so on and so forth. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is I, I think realistically, even in a best-case scenario of, of the leagues are only shut down for a month, I'm not sure just trying to push everything back a month necessarily works because then you have the, the domino the ripple effect of, of affecting the next year's plans as much too. So I think there's going to be significant changes to whatever the circumstances of the 2020 season and playoffs are. And we just have to kind of wait and see what those significant changes are. Yeah. And you get the sense, I mean, you know, the leagues are are willing to be flexible. I think teams are willing to be flexible. So if it means getting creative, if it means, you know, maybe it's just a a tournament for the Stanley Cup or or some kind Mm -hmm. of really weird outside the box solution to at least having a resolution to the season that, as you said, I mean, all, all options might be on the table at this point. I think so. You know, the 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 worst case scenario being, you know, fans of the Montreal Expos when they had the excellent yeah. team in 1994 yeah. that that never had a postseason that that year. And I think people would would much rather be able to award something, um, whether that's a you know a truncated tournament or some kind of wacky one elimination thing, like as you say. Um, all options on the table. Who knows? Maybe we'll stumble into a much better format for a postseason yeah, tournament. That's possible. <laughs> by, by having decided in this way. So I, I think we will see in the coming weeks how, how creative they're willing to be with this kind of stuff given the, the constraints put upon them. All right. Well, as you say, it's, a, it's an evolving situation. Now, much more nationalpost.com. Scott, thanks for making some time for us here. Appreciate this. Okay, anytime, Robert. All right, take care. Scott Stinson, uh, national sports columnist uh, for Post Media, uh, covering all these developments today. So it's a pretty substantial day in terms of uh, these decisions being made by pro sports. As mentioned, Major League Soccer, the National Lacrosse League, have both decided to put their seasons on pause as well. And look, I mean, obviously that's going to have an impact. So you get get the players who are in very comfortable financial shape. Uh, The teams might have insurance to some extent to to, uh, cover some of the losses related to this. That's unclear. But look, I mean, you've got, uh, well, certainly all the on-ice officials, all the off-ice officials, everyone's who involved in in putting on a game, all the people who work for the Calgary Flames in some capacity, you know, have office jobs with the team, people who work in the the Saddle Dome during games. There are a lot of people affected by this, and I mean, it's going to have a ripple effect as well. And I mean, it's not just pro sports. All kinds of different events are being canceled or postponed. Word out of New York is the Broadway's going to be shut down for a bit. So all of this is going to have a considerable economic impact. And how do we mitigate all of that? What kind of steps can we take to offset some of that economic uh, damage that, that's inevitable here at this point? Right, So we're trying to balance a lot of different things. Part of what's driving these decisions here is slowing the spread of the virus. We don't want to have a rapid spread of this. And we've seen what can happen in other countries where it spreads too rapidly. I mean, it's inevitably going to spread. But if you can slow down the spread, that can make a huge difference.
the situation in, in Ottawa has, has certainly been thrown into a little bit of chaos today. So it, it emerged a little bit earlier today that the Prime Minister's wife, Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, uh, had uh, recently returned from a speaking engagement in London, England, and began ex- exhibiting mild flu-like symptoms, including a low fever late last night. She immediately sought medical advice, this is from the statement from the Prime Minister's office, and is being tested for the COVID-19 virus. She is self-isolating at home, awaiting test results, and her symptoms have since subsided. The doctor's advice to the Prime Minister is to continue daily activities while self-monitoring, given he is ex- exhibiting no symptoms himself. However, out of an abundance of caution, the Prime Minister is opting to self-isolate and work from home until receiving Sophie's results. Based on these events and the broader evolving COVID-19 situation across Canada, the in-person First Minister's meeting will be postponed. However, the Prime Minister and Deputy Prime Minister will speak with First Ministers over the phone to discuss our collective action to limit the spread of COVID-19 and keep Canadians safe. Uh, so that from the Prime Minister's office. So it is quite an evolving situation in the nation's capital. Uh, joining us for the latest uh, on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent for Global News. David, thank you so much for joining us on what is turning out to be a rather eventful day. Yeah, it's a, it's a day that was going to be busy in any event, and it, it just got busier around noon uh, Ottawa time. Word came out from the Prime Minister's office that Sophie Gregoire Trudeau uh, went to the UK for a speaking engagement, came home and got sick, got flu-like symptoms. So she's had the COVID-19 test. Uh, we don't know what the test results are. We're told Ontario can turn these tests around apparently in about six hours if they have to. So maybe by end of day today, we'll know exactly what's up with Sophie. But she's in self-isolation. And then her husband, the prime minister, uh, did what he was telling Canadians to do yesterday when he had his big press conference, which is, Put yourself in self-isolation if there's any doubt. So the PM then announces, I'm going to stay in his home office, work with teleconference, video conference. But, of course, the PM was to be hosting all the premiers and territorial leaders for a day and a half's worth of meetings here. They were going to get underway tonight here in Ottawa. Premier Kenny is already here in town. He, he's just given a speech uh, downtown uh, in downtown Ottawa. The, the in-person part of the First Minister's meeting has been called off, but I don't think there's going to be any... We don't know if there's going to be any actual first ministers talking on the phone or, or what. That's still unclear. We do know that Kenny had a, and he, this was previously scheduled, he did have a one-on-one meeting with the deputy prime minister, Christian Freeland. That's done. Uh, presumably Premier Kenny, you know, talking about all the things that uh, Alberta is looking for from the federal government. Uh, Doug Ford, the Ontario premier, was here this morning, had a press conference, but as soon as he learned about this uh, sickness with the PM's household. Uh, boom, he's gone back to Toronto. Uh, New Brunswick's Premier Blaine Higgs, he didn't even show up because he was worried about COVID-19. Neither did UConn's Premier Sandy Silver. So uh, it's a bit of a muscle right now as we've got, you know, right there at uh, in the PM's household, he's dealing with uh, a potential COVID-19 case, certainly with some sickness. And so he is out of the game, uh, and that would presumably be as long as 14 days. Wow. I mean, on top of all of that, there are some pretty urgent issues that the premiers and the first oh, yeah. ministers were going to discuss because, you know, we've got the, the follow-up from all of this to deal with. Absolutely. So, you know, the work of the nation has to continue. And uh, obviously, there's, there's uh, I'm assuming there would be contingency plans in place if the prime minister had even gotten sick or the flu in in normal times. But certainly, they're ready to continue uh, he's ready to participate, as he said in the release, uh, this is the tr- uh, Prime Minister, uh, with the Special Cabinet Committee on COVID-19. And 
you know, there, there's, there was lots of questions that the premiers wanted to just, you know, sort out about the federal response to this thing. Yesterday, of course, the prime minister announcing a billion dollar COVID-19 response fund, um, 500 millions of dollars of which would be available to the provinces uh, to help them uh, with any increased cost to their healthcare systems. And I think there was some understanding, or you certainly could read between the lines from the prime minister, that, you know, that, that was a billion dollars to start with. If, if people need more money, just don't worry, you're going you're gonna to have more money. Uh, but I do know that the provinces, and particularly, presumably this to be Alberta too, uh, was interested in, okay, well, how does that money flow? And do we got to, you know, what, what forms do we fill out? There's all that plumbing that's got to be sorted out. But then on the economic follow, you know, as everybody in Alberta must know by now, because every time I turn around, I see Kenny talking about this. He's been telling the feds, listen, retroactively lift the cap on the fiscal stabilization program. Mm-hmm. And the fiscal stabilization thing is this big pot of money that the feds have to help out provinces on a temporary basis that are in trouble. And everybody knows Alberta's in trouble right now, obviously, with the oil prices, even before the oil price shot. And Kenny has said if the feds did that, lifted that cap, that would be $2.4 billion that Alberta would have, which Kenny says he, uh, he would use for, for job creation programs. So that was the big ask, uh, and I assume was the big ask, when Kenny met, met uh, Deputy Prime Minister Freeland uh, this morning, that uh, you know Alberta, whether the Prime Minister is sick or not, still needs some help. And I'm certain the federal government is, is making some considerations as to how it can further help Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Newfoundland and Labrador, the three uh, the three big oil producing provinces. Yeah, well, I mean, look, provinces are going to be looking for some help. So too are a lot of industries. I mean, the oil and gas sector is going to get hit hard. The tourism sector, airlines. There's a long list of sectors that are going to be hit hard by this situation. So there's there's a lot of pressure on Ottawa as we look ahead to this March 30th budget uh, to to help the economy, help these various sectors get through this period. Yeah, and and again, a lot of that work is now going to have to happen, you know, remotely. With uh, again, not let's remember here, Rob. It's not just the prime minister that is uh, uh, out of action now. And I, I don't want to use the word of action because he, you know, he can still participate and still be doing the job of the prime minister, albeit he's going to have to do it by phone and by teleconference. But he's got two cabinet ministers also in self isolation. The natural resources minister, Seamus O'Regan, uh, he was at a he was at the big prospector and developers conference in Toronto. Uh, what of that a couple of weekends ago? Twenty five thousand people there. We know one person for sure had COVID nineteen and apparently came in contact with Minister O'Regan. So O'Regan uh, is in self isolation. Uh, we don't know the results of his test. Another minister, the International Trade Minister Mary Ng from Markham, Ontario, uh, she has asthma and she said, "Listen, my asthma is matching up, and I'm just getting over a cough." So again, out of an abundance of caution, she's in self isolation. Jagmeet Singh today, the NDP leader, said he woke up not feeling well, phoned his doctor up, and and doctor told him that, well, you don't have any cold or flu symptoms, you got something else. But Jagmeet Singh saying, even still, I'm staying home. So Jagmeet Singh's out of action. And then there's a liberal backbencher, Anthony Housefather, who's an MP from Montreal. He went down to a conference in Washington, a conference in which there was a COVID-19 person, and so House Feather is back in uh, his riding, also in self-isolation. So that's the, the parliamentarians. They were already discussing, what do we do? Do we still keep flying around the country? Um, do we still, is there some way to conduct the nation's business remotely in terms of a legislature? We don't know the answer to those, but those are the questions and discussions people are having. MPs are here till tomorrow, and then MPs fly home for a week in their ridings. So I'm assuming by the end of next week, we'll... we'll get some answers as to how uh, how our institutions here in Ottawa are going to operate, you know, in the worst-case scenario. 
And David, is there any reaction in Ottawa today to to the uh, announcement last night from the U.S. president, the steps that the Americans oh, are yeah. taking, banning flights from from the European Union, how how all of this might impact Canada, what steps we might need to take? Yeah. So the first thing to know is Canada had no clue that that was going to happen. So Canadian, the 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 federal government, the prime minister, the deputy prime minister, and every, any official in Canada, uh, we learned about this ban at the same time that everybody else did. So it caught everybody by surprise. And yes, there are now people asking their uh, counterparts in Washington going, you know, people can fly to Canada and then they can take a bus across the border. Yeah. You know, uh, that's the way the system works. And when, how does this affect what the United States expects of us? Do we need to ramp something up? And those questions are still still unanswered, or it'll be later in the day before uh, we get some certainty about those answers. Of course, uh, the Prime Minister has asked, been asked several times, and I think I probably asked him this yesterday, about what about mandatory travel restrictions um, for Canada? Should Canada be banning travelers coming from China, Iran, or, or somehow restricting them? As you probably know, Canada has a screening system. So when you come, uh, when you, if you're traveling from anywhere, and it's, this is the land border or at an airport, you get asked a bunch of questions, and there's a different response depending on your answers. But there's no mandatory bans. And the prime minister's point is the science says, and there's lots of studies through the SARS crisis and others, that mandatory travel restrictions are, are not effective, or they're as effective as the kind of screening programs that Canada has in place. So take that for what it's worth, but it is an issue that people are getting at, or asking politicians in Canada, what about mandatory travel restrictions for us? But so far, nothing from the federal government in terms of uh, any uh, foreign restrictions. All right. A very fluid situation. Uh, full updates, of course, globalnews.ca. Uh, David Aiken, thank you so much for this. Appreciate it. No problem. Cheers. There you go. David Aiken, uh, Global's chief political correspondent on this evolving situation uh, in the nation's capital. Let's talk a bit more about uh, the economy, the economic fallout from uh, this whole situation, but also, you know, looking big picture in terms of how well positioned are we in in terms of our competitiveness as a jurisdiction. And certainly there are a lot of ways even before all of this that that's that's been eroded. Uh, And this is something that that our next guest is involved in in publishing each year, the annual uh, tax competitiveness report. Uh, looking at uh, where Canada stands, looking at where our competitors stand and, and what steps we might want to take to improve our standing, improve our competitiveness and, and the value that comes with that. Uh, because we were actually in a pretty strong position for some time, but we've lost some ground in recent years, not necessarily because of anything we've done. I think we've been largely static, but that's part of the problem when your competitors are, are improving their situation. So joining us to talk more about all of this, we're pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Jack Mintz, President's Fellow at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary, more at policyschool.ca. Dr. Mintz, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, you know, I mean, in terms of, of competitiveness and, and kind of the decisions we need to make in the short term here as we face some, some economic uncertainty uh, over the next few months, I wanted to get your thoughts on maybe how governments need to, to approach this and the sorts of things that perhaps ought to be on the table or, or not on the table, as it were. Uh, well, I think uh, right now, you know, with the uh, both the pandemic and uh, and the uh, you know significant uh, price war that's uh, gone on in oil markets, that uh, you know governments in, in Canada, uh, particularly uh, Alberta, for example, uh, given its reliance on energy, uh, you know, have a, a lot of work to be done. Um, but I think that um, in the longer term, uh, there are issues that we raise in the report. Uh, that suggests that we need to uh, be quite concerned about our competitiveness. And in fact, one of the areas where we did have a significant advantage 
relative to the rest of the world has now been lost. And uh, we no longer have as, as much of an advantage as we thought we did have at one time. Yeah. And, it, and of course, that's in the tax side. Right. Yeah. I mean, here in Alberta, of course, as, as you're well aware, and you, you've advised on the policy side of this, the Alberta government has, uh, it, it, I think, taken steps to enhance Alberta's uncompetitive situation by reducing our rate here. Uh, the opposition critics of the government, though, suggest this is a mistake. There's there's pressure, actually, on the Alberta government to uh, to reverse that. So how, how big a mistake would that be, in your view? Well, I think it would be a huge mistake. In fact, there's already uh, a number of... Uh, uh, Potential companies are thinking of actually coming to Alberta uh, before all the <laughs> the world fell apart this week. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but uh, you know I don't you know as a longer term thing, uh, if anything, I think uh, Alberta needs to uh, uh, continue down that road. Uh, it's getting a, a good reputation internationally as as welcoming uh, investment, uh, a, a government that's uh, pro business uh, or at least business friendly to attract because they want to get investment and they want to get jobs. And, and in fact, uh, some of the areas that uh, businesses are particularly looking at Alberta is not in the oil and gas sector, but actually in other sectors, which is exactly what I would have expected uh, with the rate cut. That It's actually one of the best ways of achieving diversification uh, because you're going to end up attracting a number of businesses in other sectors that would not normally look at Alberta. But now Alberta not only has this uh, significant rate advantage in, uh, in all of North America uh, in terms of their corporate tax rate, uh, but they also have, uh, you know, a number of other policies that, uh, you know, that uh, they're they're using to help uh, attract more more businesses to yeah. to Alberta. And it's going to take time to see that evolve, but uh, and we'll see how much it, it occurs. But uh, I do know that there's already uh, a number of good situations that uh, Alberta might be facing soon that uh, will be good news for the province. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because maybe the debate is more polarized than it once was because, you know, and you, you talk about some of the recent history in your report where, you know, going back to, to previous liberal governments, conservative governments, we, we sort of had some consensus federally, at least, uh, on the value of reducing those rates and, and making Canada more competitive. So what changed? Uh, well, I think uh, surprisingly, actually, uh, the federal liberals uh, uh, still actually understand uh, the competitiveness issue is important. Uh, to at least for large company investments, uh, so they haven't raised corporate income tax rates uh, themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, unlike some of the provinces that, uh, like BC and and uh, Alberta did uh, back in 2015, uh, and uh, New Brunswick government, uh, for example. Uh, in fact, um, you know, so so they they've um, you know they've kind of understood that. In fact, they brought in accelerated depreciation uh, back in November 18th as a response to the U.S. reform. Um, I don't think that was uh, sufficient. I think the U.S. reform has raised other important issues, and it's not just a matter of bringing in, you know, some more investment into, you know, structures and, and, and machines and things like that, but also uh, because we've lost our corporate tax rate advantage vis-a-vis the U.S., um, uh, particularly for uh, what's called intangible income. This is kind of like, you know, income paid for people that hold intellectual property uh patents and things like that, and marketing and services. Uh, there's a number of functions that are already starting to move down to the United States because of their much lower tax rate. In fact, uh, the federal rate is only 13% right now and uh, rising to 16%. It's not even as high as 21 at the federal level. And so that is really attracting, actually, uh, people to, for example, close down call centers in Canada and, and move to the United States. So 
that's actually been happening. I, I, I know stories anecdotally. I don't haven't seen data to support it because it's way too early yet to see any data. Um, but uh, but these these sorts of things happen, uh, and and the reason is that the U.S. reform, not just in terms of lowering the rate, but they did a whole bunch of other changes that have now made it much more attractive to put profits in the United States. So you know we we might get an investment happening in Canada, although lately our investment climate has been very poor since 2014. Not just in oil and gas, but actually almost every sector except for finance, insurance, and um, uh, and real estate, and that's dominated by uh, the residential investments that are happened in Canada since 2014. Uh, but uh, not only have we been losing, you know, investment in the past four or five years, uh, at least relatively, uh, we've also been uh, seeing this uh, fight of our tax base. So we've been kind of having kind of now a corporate income tax rate that's high by international standards uh, relative to you know the weighted average of OECD. Um, but we're uh, we're trying to keep capital by having specially targeted incentives for like manufacturing and clean technology. But uh, we're letting that tax base getting eroded now with this high rate, and so it's not a very good uh, position to be in, uh, at least for the long run. Yeah. And Alberta is now an exception because. The total corporate tax rate now in Alberta will be 23%, and that's actually going to be one of the lowest in North America, which is, I think, a very good thing for Alberta. Yeah, and in terms of Canada's position, though, as you say, we've, you know, the government has resisted pressure from, from some to raise the rates, but, but even though we've held it steady, we've really seen an erosion in, in that competitiveness because of what other countries are doing. I mean, the United States is an obvious one, but it's, it's not just the United States, is it? No, actually, uh, France is lowering their rate nine points, and India just had a massive reduction of nine points in their corporate income tax rate. I mean, they were on the very high side. France was at 30, 34%, and now they're going um, uh, down to a little less than 26%. Um, and uh, India had a, also had a very high rate uh, that they've uh, lowered quite sharply, actually, uh, from 35%. So, uh, but, but also Belgium. <laughs> and, and so, actually, there's been um, a number of countries uh, since 2017 that have lowered rates. But it's interesting, they've also tightened up certain uh, deductions. So it's not, um, you know, their effective rate in terms of, you know, how much overall tax is paid on, let's say, uh, income from a dollar of new investment is, uh, you know, uh, hasn't really changed very much in some of these countries. Uh, but what they have done is they've lowered the rate, and maybe tightened up on interest deductions and things like that. Uh, but they're still lowering the rate. So if you look at Scandinavia, for example, like Sweden, they're at 22%. And, uh, and was, you know, Finland is is uh, down in that area, too, as well as Norway and Denmark. So so they've done that while at the same time uh, protecting their tax base more. And that's the sort of strategy I think the uh, federal government needs to consider for the corporate income tax. Well, we'll get a budget uh, on March 30th. And as we talked about, there's some short-term uh, pressures that the government's going to need to address. But but certainly then, in your view, there needs to be a real focus, that, that competitiveness needs to be a top priority right now. Well, I think so. I mean, I think we have to step back and look at you know, what's happened to the Canadian economy uh, and investment. Uh, our investment in every sector, is, except for one, is below uh, 2014, including manufacturing and trade and, and, and some others. Um, so companies are not investing. Uh, we have uh, political risk that's gone up. Uh, in fact, I have some nice numbers to show that. In fact, uh, you know, we're just behind uh, China and um and uh, Britain now in political risk, uh, and in fact, well above uh, Mexico and, and United States and things like that. So that's not good either. That's a major cost of investment.
top of that, we have uh, all this regulatory risk that's going on and, uh, you know, blockades and things like that. And so the one great item we had in 2012 was a significant tax advantage. And, and now some of that has been lost. And so then you look at the Canadian economy, you know, we don't look like such great, you know, a great place to invest. And if people internationally are looking to invest, they're going to go to a big country like the United States or India or China uh, or, you know, uh, Korea and places like that, as opposed to, to us where, you know, we have uh, limited potential. Um, and so that's why I think Alberta breaking from the pack has, has been a very important uh, step because I think that's going to help Alberta be one of the most attractive places in North America for for investments, while the other provinces are, are not going to have that reputation, I'm afraid. Yeah. As mentioned, much more, policyschool.ca. Jack Mintz, appreciate uh, you making some time for us here today. Thanks for this. Okay, my pleasure. That's uh, Dr. Jack Mintz, President's Fellow at the uh, University of Calgary School of Public Policy. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.